morning, gentlemen. I mean, this, this is great. It's uh, 57, it's foggy, and, and we're here. And this is, uh, this is exciting. It's exciting to gather, exciting to continue to be toughened up as guys who want to grow as disciples. I imagine that's, that's why we're here, is to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. And um, we are going to see an account of Jesus today in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, that I really believe makes our Savior even more relatable to us. And we're going to see how his disciples, in this case, Peter, James, and John, respond to that situation, which makes them more relatable to us as well. So um, grateful that you're here, grateful that you are joining us online, whether that's live or later sometime today or this week. And um, I, I think back to how we have been learning these lessons from the lives of the disciples. And by the way, Dale, I'm sorry, I meant to put this, this slide up with information about Movement Day, but I would, I would recommend that you would register for this and, uh, and consider being a part of Movement Day Greater Williamsburg this year. So thank you for announcing that, Dale. Uh, as we've been looking at these lessons from the lives of the disciples, we are in week nine. Uh, we will have four more weeks left, just because as guys, we like to sometimes plan ahead. Who, who likes to plan ahead? All right. The rest of us, we just kind of show up. Um, but we do have four more lessons that we are going to be learning, and we will be taking a break the Friday after uh, immediately following Thanksgiving. So two more weeks to meet in November and then two in December. But as we look today at week nine, we are going to be looking at Peter, James, and John part two. Not as I will, but as you will. And as we have been going through these lessons, uh, these are each lesson title comes directly from the words of Jesus and in an effort to teach his disciples in the, in the first century, as well as to teach us in the 21st century. And this will be uh, from Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. So uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to that chapter. Um, Last week, Wes did a wonderful job of talking about Peter, James, and John, part one. And he made a, a comment that I thought was profound, that Jesus was preparing his disciples for something greater. And I think Jesus is doing the same thing in the lives of his disciples, specifically Peter, James, and John, that applies to us as well, as we think about our walk and the need to depend on him faithfully as his followers in the 21st century. So last week, when Wes was looking at the, uh, the healing of the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, and then the raising of Jairus' daughter, who was also 12 years old, Peter, James, and John witnessed that event. Peter, James, and John will be witnesses, <laughs> sort of, <laughs> uh, lazy witnesses to what we will see today in the Garden of Gethsemane. And one of the other more well-known lessons that Peter, James, and John learned in their discipleship journey with Jesus Christ that we're not covering as part of our, our time during this semester is the Mount of Transfiguration. So you see Jesus taking these three disciples who are sort of his inner core, his inner circle, and allowing them to really learn some deep-seated lessons of discipleship because he knew the important role that they would play in the building of his church and his kingdom. And not just, uh, not just regionally, but worldwide as we continue to experience the benefits of the fruit of the gospel that these three men and the other disciples were able to, to uh, lay that foundation for us. So as we have been learning, 
Jesus uses extraordinary men, or ordinary men, I should say, to accomplish his extraordinary mission. Ordinary men like you and me to accomplish his extraordinary mission of making disciples and building his kingdom. This is exciting. Amen. That's, that's a good place for an amen. Thank you. Was that Ted? All right. Thank you, Ted. Um, so uh, as we've been learning, a disciple is called to faith in Jesus Christ. That is the starting point. A disciple is called to follow after Jesus Christ and obey him. And uh, that, that second facet of discipleship will really play into uh, what we learn about today and observe today as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, a disciple is called to fulfill the mission of Jesus Christ and tell others about him. And then finally, a disciple is called to fellowship in the family of Jesus Christ, to have community. If Jesus needed community, we need community, and we're going to see a, a facet of that as well, which I hope to highlight in our text from Matthew chapter 26, as Jesus himself needs some of his closest friends around him at his hour of greatest need. So just for context, and this is where we get into the exciting maps, guys. All right, this amazing. I'm blowing your minds with these maps, I'm sure. Um, the, the map on the, yes, your left, my right, is a map of, of ancient Palestine or ancient Israel. And I don't know if you can see that red oval, but it's down in the south around Jerusalem. So what we've done is as we've navigated through Jesus and his lessons of the disciples, we're actually moving somewhat quickly into the week of Jesus's passion and his suffering. Um, this uh, context of what we're going to be seeing happens on um, Maundy Thursday, which is the evening that Jesus instituted the Last Supper for his disciples. And so that was happening in an upper room in a building in Jerusalem, which is in the southern part of Israel, of ancient Israel, known as Judea. And uh, the map on your right is a, uh, a close-up of what the ancient city of Jerusalem would have looked like and where Jesus is going to be with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. So you can see just to the east, right outside the temple area, through this valley called the Kidron Valley, is where uh, the Mount of Olives is. And on the western slope of the Mount of Olives is where Jesus is. It will be in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and just so you know, for reference, we have, if, the, if this building were the ancient city of Jerusalem, just for, for reference point, you can imagine on that far side up towards Route 5, that's kind of where that Kidron Valley and the Mount of Olives would be in the Garden of Gethsemane. The only thing bad about that is I think that would make this area the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna which is uh, a place where you do not want to be because that is the illustration that Jesus uses when he talks about hell. So um, not to say that that's where you're sitting, but uh, just for reference, it's to the east and it is across from the Temple Mount area on the western slope. So overlooking the city of Jerusalem. Now, uh, I know a few, uh, Bill and, and my dad, who, who's been to Israel before? Okay, Stan, a few other guys. Uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, as it's traditionally identified, is still a place you can visit today. Um, and uh, this is a picture uh, from that garden. Now, the word Gethsemane itself means oil press. The idea that olives would be pressed and oil would be made from the crushing of these olives. And so 
This is actually a, a helpful illustration even of what Jesus would be experiencing in this great moment of agony as he would come before his heavenly father in all honesty and yet all humility and uh, avail himself to his father's plans of redemption. Um, and that's, that makes the, the name Gethsemane an even more appropriate place where Jesus would spend this kind of this final hour or hours, some have, have even guessed, um, in prayer before his moment of greatest trial. Uh, this is also possibly, we know that when David fled the city of Jerusalem, when his son Absalom uh, was usurping him, and David knew that his life was in danger, he and his, his caravan essentially fled up the Mount of Olives. And some believe that he may have even spent time here um, in that time of grief as well, trying to seek safety from Absalom. Um, this was a place where Jesus often went to teach and to pray. We find clues of this in Luke chapter 22, verse 39, as well as John chapter 18, verse 2. This is why Judas knew where to find Jesus the night that he betrayed him, because this was a common place where Jesus would go to teach and to pray. So what are the lessons that we're going to learn from Jesus on this? We're going to learn that Jesus models uh, three, three components of discipleship for us. And for, for his disciples, as well as for us today. The first is Jesus models the prayer of a disciple. Secondly, Jesus models the posture of a disciple. And thirdly, Jesus models the preparation of a disciple. So with that preview in mind, we'll look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 and following. These words will be on the screen. And, uh, and we will read them together in our Bibles. So, here we go. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, if you remember from Claude's uh, message a few weeks ago, those are James and John, also known as the sons of thunder. Those are the sons of Zebedee. So he took them, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came and he saw the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners, Rise, let us go. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. 
And for those of us who are familiar with the story, this is the moment when Judas, one of the 12 disciples, betrays his rabbi and the Savior, Jesus. Um, and Dale will be teaching us from that next week. So we'll pick up the action next week right there. But for today, as we think about what we observe in this very emotional and real com uh, account from the life of our Savior, which I'm, I'm grateful for. Uh, I can relate to Jesus in this moment. I can also, guys, relate to Peter, James, and John in this moment. Uh, I think that's some of the interesting dichotomy that we see, and even in our own lives, of um, wanting to be people who come before our Father, honestly, as Jesus did, at the same time feeling sometimes like Peter, James, and John, where we were a little bit, uh, little bit lazy, a little bit drowsy, when it came to standing strong in the moment when we needed to. So let's go back and think about how Jesus models for us what a disciples to be about and look at what the text tells us. The first is that Jesus models the prayer of a disciple. And we see, interestingly, the word prayer, the verb prayer, is mentioned five times throughout this, these ten verses, which shows us, uh, I think, the, the focus of what we are to learn and take from this passage. We see it in verse 26, or sorry, verse 36, verse 39, verse 41, verses 42, and verse 44, we see the word prayer is mentioned. Um, the truth is, guys, prayer is a spiritual discipline that the Savior lived out a lot. Looking at the Gospels, there are more than 25 different times that we read that Jesus uh, went to pray, or that Jesus prayed. Some of those times we read that Jesus went off by himself early to pray. Other times we read that Jesus prayed before he performed a miracle. Some of Jesus' more meaningful, I shouldn't say more meaningful, but maybe more emotional prayers came when he was on the cross as he was preparing to give up his life as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus was a man of prayer and he modeled prayer which is fascinating to me because Jesus was the divine son of God. He still is the divine son of God, right? And yet, in his humanity, as, fully, as being fully human as well, he sought that deeper relationship with his heavenly father, which should be a model to us to seek a deeper relationship with our heavenly father as well. But we find that Jesus came before his heavenly father honestly. He was honest in his humanity, in his pain, in his struggle, in his anguish. The text uses at least three different very emotionally strong words to describe how Jesus was approaching this moment. Uh, he was sorrowful. He was troubled. He said that his soul was troubled to the point of death. That word for soul is psuche, where we get our English word psyche or psychology. It was just... His very inner life was so anguished because he knew the trial that was coming. In just a few short hours, or really uh, within the next day, is that he would be betrayed, he would be arrested, he would be flogged and beaten, arms stretched out upon a cross, and brutally murdered. And within that, he would take the weight of the sin of everyone in the world past, present, and future from his perspective, humanly speaking, upon himself. That's, uh, I'm thankful, his anguish that you and I will never know. But he came before his Heavenly Father 
honestly. And he knew exactly what was going to happen. In the words where he uh, asks in verse 41 or verse 39 uh, about this cup, you'll remember Claude when he talked about uh, James and John, and they asked, well, can we sit on your right and your left hand? And, and Jesus said, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Do you remember that when Claude mentioned that in his passage from Matthew chapter 20? Uh, that cup is an Old Testament reference to the pouring out of God's wrath. And in this moment, Jesus was on the precipice of experiencing the fullest weight, infinite weight of that wrath poured out upon himself on the cross. That's what he refers to as this cup. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. And he came before his heavenly father honestly in prayer. Now, thinking back to what Wes shared with us last week about how Jesus was preparing his disciples for something greater. Here, Jesus is modeling prayer for his disciples and for us. We would go on to read in the New Testament that Peter and John would embody this discipline of prayer as well. We read throughout the book of Acts early on, when the focus is still on Peter before it shifts to Paul, how Peter was engaged in the discipline of prayer. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John go to the synagogue, it says, for the hour of prayer. We also read in Acts chapter 10 that Peter is by himself on the rooftop of a house in the city of Joppa. And what is he doing? Can anyone tell me what Peter's doing on the rooftop of that house? Can anyone guess? Just He's praying. He's praying. And God gives him a vision with a sheet and animals of all kinds, even unclean ones, and says, Peter, eat. And that was the opening of Peter's eyes in prayer to know that the gospel was to go out, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. We even find John at the end of his life on the island of Patmos, off the coast of Turkey in the uh, Aegean Sea, that he is on the Lord's day in the spirit. He says, he, he writes, he was in the spirit. He receives this revelation in Revelation chapter one. And Jesus Christ appears to him. Now, I believe that the reason why he was in the spirit is because he was in isolation, but he was praying. And think about the wonderful words in Revelation that John received because he was praying. And now we have that in our scriptures. So Jesus modeled prayer for his disciples. Well, what else did Jesus model? He modeled the posture of a disciple. We see this in verses 39 and 42. Uh, and and here's, here's what I mean by that. Uh, Jesus, guys, was physically prostrate. It says to us that he went a little farther in verse 39 and he fell on his face. This is again to express that, um, that anguish that he's feeling. He fell on his face. Have you, I know I have from time to time, have you ever had those fall on your face times of prayer of, oh Lord, uh, I, am, I am just coming before you in, in total desperation here. Jesus falls on his face, but he was also prostrate spiritually. This is what's most remarkable, because we can come before the Lord in prayer, and we can throw ourselves physically on the ground and say, oh, Lord, I am, I am in anguish here. But spiritually, Jesus modeled a posture for his disciples and for us that is remarkable. In the words that he shared, because in his posture, Jesus submitted his own will to that of his heavenly father. 
And we've already commented that Jesus knew exactly what was coming down the pike. He knew that he would need to suffer. And yet he comes before his father and he prays in verse 39, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And here are the remarkable words. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was willing to surrender and submit to the will of the Father, even though he knew that it would require his infinite suffering for you and for me. He surrendered and he submitted, even at the cost of his suffering, to provide deliverance and salvation for you, for me, and for all humanity who would believe on him by faith. That's the posture of a disciple, surrendering one's will for that of the Father. That's because Jesus came to his father honestly as well as humbly. And I'm struck by Jesus' posture of humility. That's really the, the incredible posture of the disciple that we should all consider and we should all embrace in our lives, which is hard. Because I grow convinced more and more as I look at my own life and I just see our world around us. Um, an election year would be the perfect example to see this principle played out, that uh, humility is one of, if not the most important virtue of the Christian life, but one of the least practiced. Because we are just a people of pride. We are just unwilling to surrender and submit, especially when it means that we may need to suffer. But that is how our Savior lived. And that's the posture of a disciple that he modeled for his disciples and for us. I'm struck with the words of Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9 which read as follows. <clears throat> Again, thinking, thinking about Jesus in this moment of, of anguish and, and honesty, but humility in his prayer to his Father. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, guys, what this means is it's not that Jesus was on the cross and said, Father, take me down from this cross. He had chosen the night before to submit to this plan. Jesus endured what was on the cross. And he died. He really did die. He was really in a tomb. And when the text says that his father answered his prayer, he redeemed and resurrected him three days later to new life. And that is how the father chose to work his plan of salvation for you and for me through the surrender and the submission of his son who suffered for us, through the posture of humility that he was modeling for his disciples. Now in our lives, Jesus could have I guess he could have chosen to, uh, to buck the system. Um, I wasn't going to share this, but it came to mind. And so, uh, you know, Dale, you know you get on homiletical thin ice when you start to say extemporaneously something you weren't planning on saying. Um, I'm not going to recommend anyone see The Last Temptation of the Christ by Martin Scorsese. I'm not going to recommend it. Don't go see it. I happened to have to have watched it through a class I took in college on cinema as an art form. It was... It was called Cinema as Gut Form because it was supposed to be an easy class. I struggled through it, but anyway. Um, 
But that's the whole premise of the movie. I'll tell it to you so you don't have to watch the movie. That Jesus is on the cross and his last temptation is maybe like he's wrestling with in Gethsemane. The temptation is that he can come down from the cross. And the movie portrays what would life have been like if Jesus got off the cross. And that's where it gets blasphemous and, and, and creative in ways that aren't helpful. Um, he stayed on the cross. It wasn't a situation where Jesus... Um, took what he wanted and made it happen. He surrendered to the will of the Father. And I'm reminded of a quote from biblical scholar Don or D.A. Carson, who draws a connection to Jesus' surrender in the garden to another garden from the beginning of the Bible, where the posture of human humanity was not to surrender to what God the Father wanted. And here's Carson's quote. By the way, that garden would be the Garden of Eden. In the first garden, not your will but mine changed paradise to desert and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. Now, not my will but yours brings anguish to the man who prays it, but transforms the desert into the kingdom and brings man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. Amen. We see in this garden Jesus uh, overturning the situation of the Garden of Eden and the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3. It's a beautiful picture because Jesus said, not my will, but yours. Well, finally, Jesus models the preparation of a disciple. Sorry, I misspelled disciple there for those online. It does end in an E. <laughs> but he models the preparation of a disciple. And we see this in verses 38, 40, and 41. Because here is Jesus' simple request of his disciples. He says to them, My soul is troubled, sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Later he says, watch and pray. This word for watch uh, is always a fascinating one for me. It shows up three times in the text here, uh, to watch, to be watchful, uh, or to stay awake. It's the, the Greek word gregoreo, which I love to use and point out that if your name is Gregory, I don't see a Gregory here, I don't think, but if there's a Gregory watching on the, oh, I'm sorry, Greg. Greg's right there, sorry, there's Greg. Greg, your name means stay awake. So I hope that during this time, I hope you have been staying awake. <laughs> um, and for other Gregs who are watching, or for anyone that you know, that, that means to stay awake, to stay alert. Uh, th that is what Jesus is telling his disciples. Um, that's because their need and our need is to remain steadfast and aware and awake and not to be drowsy, which is ironic. That's exactly what they, what they did. Um, they are to be spiritually aware of what's going on, and, and so are we. This is the same word that Jesus uses when he's teaching about his second coming. And he says, stay awake because you don't know when the time is coming. It's the same word, gregoreo. Jesus knows that we need to stay awake. Now, I, I feel bad for Peter in this situation. I feel bad for the disciples. I can think of plenty of times, uh, I mean, even last night, uh, you, you know, you're, you're maybe, maybe you're talking to your wife or maybe you're talking to someone else and you're, you're getting a little drowsy and you, you can't stay awake. Um, but in this moment, Jesus knew his disciples. He, he asked them a certain request. And this is where Jesus needed community, okay? We find this in verse 38. 
and then again in verse 40. Do you notice that Jesus asks them to, to watch with me? He said, will you watch with me? He was inviting them, those that he needed in his greatest hour, to, to watch personally, to stay awake and watch with me. Jesus needed those men. But they could not stay awake. They were not aware. They were drowsy and even went to sleep. And again, poor Peter, I feel sorry for him. Jesus comes up to him, even though the other, other two were sleeping. Uh, and he looks at Peter, but he addresses all of them, said, could you not stay awake for one hour? And he goes back, prays, comes back again. Same result, they were sleeping. Goes back a third time. And I'm not saying it wasn't late. I'm not saying they didn't have the right to be sleepy and tired. But Jesus is taking a physical situation and drawing a spiritual truth from it. Because Jesus knew that he needed to be fully prepared for his trial, which would come that next day. And he also knew that his disciples would need to be fully prepared for their own trial, which would happen that night. And what was the result for them? They denied him and they all left. They weren't ready. Jesus, however, took on death, and he did it through obedience. Jesus makes an interesting comment here. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. I think what he's talking about there is we have desires humanly to do the right thing, but sometimes we just lack the ability to do it. And the result is, that is his, at his hour of greatest temptation, Jesus was ready, but the disciples were not. So uh, what do we take from this as we, uh, as we wrap up? Our application is this, guys. We should come before our Heavenly Father in prayer, often, honestly, and humbly. We should come before our Heavenly Father in prayer often, because just as Jesus understood, this was an important part of the spiritual battle. It was an important part of his life. It should be an important part of our lives, too. If Jesus needed to pray, don't you think we do? The answer is yes. And he came before his heavenly Father often. We, too, should create space in our lives to come before our heavenly Father in prayer often. That is why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Now, if you're looking to memorize scripture, guys, and you want to start off on a good note to give yourself some confidence, I would recommend 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. You can do that. Uh, but more importantly than memorizing the scripture is applying the principle. Well, I had one professor once say that uh, this verse is, is referring to prayer almost like um, when, when you have a hacking cough, you've heard that, <coughs> that sort of repeated stuttering cough. It's almost like um, that should be how we're praying throughout the, the different seasons and parts of our day. It's not that we're always on our knees, but that we're constantly <coughs> taking those moments of space to pray before the Lord, to give him thanks, to give him praise, to bring a request before him. But we are to pray often. We are also to pray honestly. Think about Jesus in this moment. He was honest before his heavenly father. He was honest before his men. He said, my soul is troubled. 
Will you pray with me? Pray and watch. Father, uh, he was so deeply troubled. Um, in the Gospel of Luke, we, we see he was so troubled that he was sweating drops of blood, which is, I, I forget the name of it, hematodema or something like that. I'm mispronouncing it. Please forgive me online. Uh, but it is a condition that where so much stress can allow uh, blood to enter the, the capillaries in, in the sweat glands in your, in your brow. But just like Jesus came before his father honestly, so we should be honest with God in prayer and bring our burdens before our Heavenly Father. He's a big God. He can take it. He can take our anger and our frustration and our, our pain. And he wants us to come before him. And when we do, he strengthens us and gives, him peace, gives us peace. That's what we find from Philippians 4, 6, and 7, verses that have have ministered to me so much throughout my, my time in walking with the Lord. Um, be anxious. Uh, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We should come before our Father in prayer honestly. There's no sense in hiding it. He knows anyway. Finally, we should pray humbly. Humbly. Uh, we are called to submit to the will of the Father, even when it means that we need to suffer for it. And yet, we find this interesting dynamic at play in the life of Jesus, right? He was willing to say, God, I, I don't know if there's any other way. But if there's not, your will be done, not mine. We can, we can pray that. God, I, I want this to pass. But if it can't, if it's your will, guide me through it, strengthen me through it. As county waste comes through again. Thank you. Very dependable. Um, but that's, that's just it. Is we are to submit to the Father's will, even when it is difficult. How do we do that? We come before him in prayer, and we submit ourselves to him. And, and one of the, the aspects of praying humbly, guys, makes us realize that we just can't fight the battle of the spiritual life on our own. We just can't do it. I've tried to white-knuckle and, and do it on my own strength, and I fall short each and every time. That's why we humbly need to come before the Lord in prayer. I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 which reads, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Um, prayer is essential. We see, this, we see this in Jesus when in Mark chapter 9, after the transfiguration, he comes down and his disciples are trying to, to cast out a demon and it's not working and the family member uh, implores Jesus and he, he casts out the demon and his disciples ask later, why couldn't we have done that? Does anyone remember what Jesus' answer to that is? Just say it if you know it. Yeah, th this one can only be cast out by prayer. And we find that the spiritual battle is real. Satan is crouching. He is waiting. Sin, just like with, uh, with Cain, is, is crouching, ready to have us. We've got to depend on prayer, in the Lord in prayer. Now, I'm, I'm going to quote something that my friend Mike Anderson shared with me uh, on Tuesday. I don't know, Mike, if this is the exact, uh, the exact quote from Brother Andrew, 
who leads a ministry called Open Doors USA, which, which highlights the persecution of Christians all around the world. Um, but Mike, you said this, and I'm, I'm going to say this is a loose translation or whatever, um, but I like the quotation. So however it's getting out there online, let's just take it for what it's worth here. Um, but prayer isn't preparation for the battle. Prayer is the battle. We've got to make this a part of our lives, guys, as disciples of Jesus Christ. Uh, I read, sadly, a story of a, of a very large church pastor in New York City. Uh, just yesterday, it was announced that he was being fired from his position. Huge, huge church. Um, and the reasons were uh, sort of breach of trust of his leadership, but a moral failing as well. And he posted uh, a very profound um, quotation that I thought, uh, let this be a reminder to me and to us of the importance of being solidly founded on Christ in a life that has prayer at its core, scripture at its core. Um, but his quote was, when you lead out of an empty place, you make choices that have real and painful consequences. Consequences for his marriage, for his children, his wife, his ministry. Um, I, I just thought that, that reminds me of the importance of what we've been learning this morning. That Jesus, Jesus models the prayer of a disciple, the posture of a disciple, and the preparation of a disciple. It's essential to our discipleship walk with Jesus, guys. Because with that, we are allowed to be ordinary men who carry out his extraordinary mission in this world. Next week, Dale will be teaching us from Judas' friend, do what you came to do. In the meantime, as we uh, take uh, however long you want, take time to have some discussion questions to answer here. Um, first question is, which aspect of Jesus' example resonates with you the most? And why? Would it be prayer? Would it be the posture? Would it be the preparation? Share that as you circle up in your chairs. And if you're joining us online, just take some time to think about that question. And then spend some time praying together. That would, that would be a good way to end uh, our time together. So I've, I'll pray and then I'll give you guys time to discuss. And then please pray for one another in your groups before uh, dismissing whenever you would like. Feel free to stay. Stick around. We, uh, we are here, and the tent is here for you. So uh, let me pray. Lord, thanks for the, the reminders uh, to me that this text tells me as Jesus just honestly and humbly comes before you in prayer and yet submits himself, even though he knew what was happening, what was going to happen, and um, that is such an example to us as disciples of being willing to say, not, not my will, but your will be done. Uh, we, we trust you. We need you. Thank you that we can learn and grow together. Thank you that we even have time, just as Jesus gathered Peter, James, and John around himself, that we can gather around ourselves and pray and encourage one another in this time. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.